If you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 5. Last week I introduced our summer sermon series. It's quite the tongue tie. I cracked myself up in my office this morning. I was tempted to say that like a gopher from Winnie the Pooh and whistle on all the S's. The summer sermon series on the Beatitudes. And uh, today we're going to look at the very first grace our Lord teaches that is characteristic of his followers. And it is that they are poor in spirit. While you're turning there, I wanted to share a story with you that I found in my study on this particular beatitude. Uh, This story involves a judge who sat on the bench of the high court of England. He was highly esteemed and respected as a jurist. And uh, in addition to the bar, he also belonged to a local church. This was one of the large downtown churches that had three mission churches under its care and oversight. It would be akin to First Pres in Jackson, Mississippi, having mission churches in South Jackson or by the zoo or by the RTS campus. Well, they had a practice that the first Sunday of the new year, everyone would gather together. Everyone at the big church and everyone at these mission churches would come together for a combined communion service. And everyone from all walks of life would come together and worship together and sing together and kneel at the communion rail together. And on one such Sunday, the pastor of this big church is serving the Lord's Supper. And he noticed something interesting. He sees this distinguished judge kneeling right beside a man who is a convicted thief. Now, this thief had served his time in prison And after his release, he had been brought into one of these mission churches and came to faith in Christ and then actually came on staff at one of these mission churches. The pastor knew the backgrounds of both of these men and he thought it was a a cool thing to see them taking the Lord's Supper side by side. The judge must have known the former thief's story as well. Because after the service, he's on his way out. He stopped and spoke with the pastor. And he said, did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? And the pastor said, yes, I, I did. And the two men were silent for a few moments, and then the judge made the statement, What a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement and said, Yes, what a a marvelous miracle of grace. That former criminal being converted and coming to saving faith in Christ and serving on staff at our mission church. 
the judge quickly responded, Pastor, I, I wasn't referring to him. I was thinking about myself. The pastor was a little shocked by this. The judge went on to explain himself. He says, of course, it's, it's natural for this burglar to respond to God's grace when he came out of jail. His life was nothing but a desperate history of crime. And when he saw the Savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. He understood how much he needed that help. But I was taught from earliest infancy to be a gentleman. I was taught that my word was my bond and that I was to say my prayers and go to church and receive communion. And then I went up to Oxford and took my degrees and was called to the bar and eventually ascended to judge. My friend... It was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I am the greater miracle. That story is illustrative of the beatitude we are considering this morning. And Lord willing, if I do my job by the end of the sermon, you'll have a better idea of why this judge considered his faith as the greater miracle. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we plead that your spirit would draw near and illumine our minds as we open and read your word. Uh, Would you reveal to us glorious things within it? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. From Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So we're going to begin our focus on the first of the Beatitudes, and then we'll look at the second one next week, and so on and so forth. 
And one thing you'll notice with these first three is that they all have a common theme. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, they have a common theme, and that is neediness. You'll see that more as we get to those next two. But we see these first three characteristics the Lord gives of his followers are those who are needy. And this is especially apparent in this first beatitude. We also just need to quickly note that the position of this beatitude marks its prominence. The Lord Jesus was not careless when he began this sermon. He wasn't simply being arbitrary and just started listing things off. He opens his mouth to deliver the greatest sermon. And the very first thing he says is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's important he gives this one first. Because he is laying the foundation for everything that will follow. Not only in the Beatitudes, but the whole Sermon on the Mount. You should read the entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, with this statement in the back of your mind. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He is setting the groundwork for everything that is coming. Now, I'll briefly mention the word blessed. We talked about this last week. In the Greek, it is the word makarios. It means happy, carefree. My favorite definition I told you I found was consciously knowing that your great joys and satisfactions are being fulfilled. Now, this is something that Jesus promises to his people. He promises this blessedness. All right. Let's get into this first one. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I guess we probably need to start with the word poor. Is Jesus requiring that we be materially poor, or poor, poor, broke. Is he saying that those who are financially broke will inherit the kingdom of heaven? Now, of course it is true that a poor person can also be poor in spirit. There are many believers living under the poverty line today. I'd say probably a majority of believers worldwide today live beneath what we would consider the poverty line. And then when you look at church history, pretty much everyone was what we would characterize as impoverished. So of course it's true that you can be poor and also be poor in spirit, but... Being broke does not equate with poor in spirit. I say this because there's sentiment you will hear today. And it's not not only today. This has been around 
probably as long as man has been around. Uh, But there's this sentiment that the rich are bad and the poor are good. And the rich are bad because they've done something immoral to gain their riches. And if they did not, then their parents or grandparents did. And the poor ones are good because they're the ones who have been taken advantage of and treated unjustly. Now again, there are individual instances of this happening and someone exploiting another financially. But the principle of rich equals bad and poor equals good and righteous is not biblical. Nowhere in the Bible do we see it taught that poverty is a good thing or that poverty makes you inherently virtuous. The poor unbeliever is no nearer heaven than the rich unbeliever. The poor can be just as wicked. Thomas Watson leaning on his exposition of the Beatitudes, he notes here, he says, I distinguish between the poor in a state and the poor in spirit. There are the devil's poor, poor and wicked, whose clothes are not more torn than their conscience. There are some whose poverty is their sin, through, uh, who through improvidence or excess have brought themselves to want. These may be poor in a state, but not poor in spirit. It's important for us to know from the start when Jesus is talking about the poor in spirit. He is not saying that poor, being broke, equates to being poor in spirit. In addition to this... uh, I'm not going to tell you that we all need to go home and have the biggest yard sell ever and sell everything we have and then take a vow of poverty and then move into a monastery for the rest of your life. There have been a number of people throughout church history who have done just that. I remember reading of one One guy, when I was in seminary, he sold everything he had and went to a monastery out in the desert and he just stood on a pillar all day and prayed. That's what he would do. Climb up a pillar and just stand there. I'm not going to prescribe any yard sales today or any standing on pillars because I don't believe that's what our Lord wants here. It's not what he means by poor in spirit. Another thing he does not mean, quickly, poor in spirit does not mean you see yourself as worthless. It doesn't mean seeing yourself as having zero worth, that your very existence is meaningless and insignificant. The Lord Jesus is describing characteristics of his followers, the very people he died for. He considered his sheep so valuable that he laid down his life for them. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you were bought with a price. 
And that payment is the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. So these are a few things that being poor in spirit is not. What does it mean? The Greek word that we translate as poor is uh, the word patohos. The best translation would be beggarly poor, right? The, the root of this word is to cower and cringe like a beggar. And the New Testament writers will use this word to communicate this very thing. One who is so poor that they survive by begging. You think of the lame man outside of the temple laying on the mat, begging, who, if he does not receive alms, he is going to starve to death. That's the idea. One who is totally dependent on the giving of others and unable to make it without outside help. Now, let's take that definition of beggarly poor and attach it to in spirit. You do that and you have this. Blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize that spiritually speaking, they must have help from the outside in order to have any hope at all. Blessed are those who grant that they are fully dependent upon the grace and mercy of another. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. The Lord Jesus gives us an example of this in Luke 18, if you want a picture. I'm going to read this for you. Luke, uh, Luke, Jesus tells a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's how it begins in Luke 18.9. This is the opposite of being poor in spirit. This is the reverse negative of being poor in spirit. Trusting in yourself that they were righteous, and then what does that produce? Treating others with contempt. This is who Jesus is speaking to, and he gives this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Jesus continues. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That is a picture of what it looks like to be poor in spirit. Standing at the back of the room, 
not daring to lift your eyes to heaven, beating your breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That man was intimately aware of his own spiritual bankruptcy. He was not trusting in in himself and his own righteousness. That's a picture of poverty of spirit. Where does this begin? I think it begins with rightly seeing our God for who He is. That He is holy, holy, holy. And His holy standard, in addition, which He demands of us, it is nothing less than absolute perfection. We see our Lord, we see what He demands. That He is holy and that we are to live every day of our lives, never making a mistake, never having an off day, never falling into temptation, never having a rogue thought, never speaking an unkind word. That is what He demands. And the more clearly we see our God and we see His requirements, we, we will have a better idea of what it means to be poor in spirit. will become more like that tax collector in Luke 18 who went home justified. Charles Wesley, in his hymn, Jesus, lover of my soul, writes of this. Rightly seeing God and how we see ourselves in light of him. He says, just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. Vile and full of sin, I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. Rightly, seeing our God produces poverty of spirit. And if we say that we know the Lord and yet this is not produced within us, we may need to reassess our knowledge of him. This spiritual poverty is a personal, sincere acknowledgement of our own spiritual bankruptcy. Being poor in spirit is to be self-aware that although by God's grace we are not as bad as we could be, We are sinful through and through, and there is not one part of our nature that is not tainted by sin. You know, my my Methodism I was raised in for 22 years is coming back. You've got a Charles Wesley quote, now a John Wesley quote in close succession. You might say, the founder of Methodism said that? Yes, he did. Listen to this. He who is poor in spirit has a deep sense of the loathsome leprosy of sin which he brought with him from his mother's womb, which overspreads his whole soul and totally corrupts every power and faculty thereof. That is the picture of our condition. And you might be tempted to think that 
Wesley is just overstating his case. But what if I had the ability to remove the grace of God from your life? And to remove the imputed righteousness of Christ? And to remove the redeeming, restorative work of the Spirit? If I was able to remove all of those, what would be left? If the triune God removed His grace and the working of His hand, and He simply let you be, if He freed you to be true to yourself and to follow your heart, what would the core of your being look like? I can say of myself that Wesley was very near the mark. We are spiritual beggars. Thomas Watson has this quick little line. He says, we are living on the alms of free grace. Just as that beggar outside of the temple is sitting on his mat pleading for alms. We are those living on the alms of free grace. We are wretches who in full agreement from the heart can sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 8 and 9 said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. You could translate that as dung. I count them all as dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Paul is willing to part with all of those things and count them as Rubbish and dung that he would not have a righteousness of his own. What were those things? He counted as rubbish. His credentials. As a Pharisee, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a zealous persecutor of the church, blameless under the law. He had quite the resume. And yet he counts it all as a loss not having a righteousness of his own, but solely having a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. This miraculous work that Paul is speaking of that happened in his heart is the same miracle that the English judge was speaking of. He knew that there was nothing native to him that would merit his entry into the kingdom. Not his family lineage, not his degrees from Oxford, not the respect his name held in the community, not his position on the high court, not his good works or personal holiness. He could kneel at that communion rail next to that convicted thief because he knew that he too was a spiritual beggar. God had done some work in this upstanding citizen. And he could say with full confidence of himself, blessed are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves that would commend them to God Almighty. 
For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the foundation that Jesus is laying on the entire Sermon on the Mount. And it brings his people great joy. Doesn't it? This should bring us great joy. You don't have to pretend to be perfect like you have it all together that there aren't embarrassments or, or failures in your life. That there are things you're, you're ashamed of and you feel like you have to hide. That is the prerequisite to the kingdom. Now the unbelieving world absolutely hates this. What does the natural man and the natural woman love? Uh, four letters. Self. Self-reliance, self-esteem, self-confidence, self-expression. Believe in yourself. To thy own self be true, to quote Polonius. What would the beatitudes of the unbeliever be? We could go on and on. I wrote down a few. Blessed are the one... Blessed is the one who is always right. Blessed is the strong. Blessed is the one who has the power. Blessed is the one who is satisfied with himself or herself. Blessed is the one who has high self-esteem and is confident has many achievements so that they are respected by others. I thought of Maslow's hierarchy of needs for anybody who took a psychology class in college. Uh, Blessed is the one who fully realizes one's potential. Who who, uh, reaches that level of self-actualization. Blessed is the one who fully develops one's abilities and appreciation for life. The answer is always the same. It's an exaltation of the self. But the believer parts with self. And parts with his own righteousness for Christ. The believer sees Himself as nothing without Christ. That's why that judge could kneel next to the thief. This is completely opposite from our world. It is when we are made nothing that God does something incredible. You can go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and read the account of creation In Genesis 1, we're told that out of nothing, uh, the Latin is ex nihilo, out of nothing, God made everything. Out of nothing, he made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He made creation out of nothing and then filled it. And that's a macrocosm, which we see represented in every human heart that comes to trust in Christ. They are made new creations. God causes 
the newborn Christian to be poor in spirit. He makes them nothing that he might create something new and then fill them with the graces of his spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm not going to be able to do justice to the last half. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Imagine you're applying for a job. You sent in your resume. You've gotten a call back and you've come in and you sit down with your prospective employer and they say, tell me a little bit about yourself. And you respond by just quoting Charles Wesley and saying, the Lord is all truth and grace, but I am all unrighteousness. Vile and full of sin I am. How would the interview go? I can't promise you that you'll get that job. But the text does promise that for the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the state of glory where the saints will enjoy and reign with God and with the angels forever. It's an unbelievably wondrous promise that when we approach God Almighty and openly confess our abject spiritual poverty to the one who does that, he gives grace and entry into his kingdom. And that's good news for the poor, isn't it? So if that's the promise, there's also a uh, negative side to this as well, or, or, or the reverse. If those who are poor in spirit inherit the kingdom, then those who are not poor in spirit will not enter the kingdom. Uh, the spiritually proud are lost. The self-sufficient are lost. Anyone who believes that there is something within him that will make God prefer him or accept him is lost. Self-righteousness, moral pride, vain presumption are all things that will damn the soul. And it does not matter how many times you've walked the aisle, it does not matter how many times you've raised your hand or signed a decision card or prayed the sinner's prayer, it doesn't matter how many times you've gone and given your testimony, without spiritual poverty, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Back to Luke 18. The tax collector went home justified. The Pharisee did not. We need to be aware of our spiritual poverty. You remember what the Lord said to the church at Laodicea? Revelation 3, verses 17 and 18. He says, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the same of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Well, how do I afford that? If I'm a beggar, how do I afford to come and buy gold refined by fire and white garments and salve for my eyes? Point you to Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's the economy of the kingdom. For you who are thirsty, we'll get there in a few weeks. For you who are thirsty, for you who feel your spiritual poverty, come and buy without money. There's so much more that could be said. Being poor, in the, being poor in spirit is the posture of saving faith. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Coming to the Lord with open hands, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. This is the posture of saving faith. Also, this is something we never outgrow. We never graduate from this until we are in glory. And the longer we live and the longer we walk with the Lord, the more profound will be our sense of spiritual poverty. This is why Paul, at the end of his life, while he is imprisoned on account of the gospel, could call himself the chief of sinners. He wasn't being hyperbolic. He was simply reflecting who he was, a man poor in spirit. We don't graduate from this. And in fact, we shouldn't desire to, well, desire glory, of course, but we shouldn't desire to in this life because the Lord use, he uses our poverty to grow us and strengthen us. I would guess that some of the most profitable times of growth in your life may coincide with times where you are viscerally aware of your spiritual neediness. Realizing our spiritual poverty is a precursor to our God working. I'll end with this, though. How do I become poor in spirit? There's this, you've scared me about the person who is not poor in spirit being damned, I, I want to inherit the kingdom. You've scared me, John. How do I be poor in spirit? Well, I kind of mentioned this earlier very briefly, but I'll come back to it. The answer is don't look at yourself. Self is never the answer. You're going you're gonna to get worried and anxious and say, well, I'm going to fixate on myself and I'm going to make sure that I do things that make me poor in spirit. Don't do it. 
Instead, look to Christ. And the more you dwell on the Savior, the more poor in spirit you will become. I want to end with a Martin Lloyd-Jones quote. He writes, The way to become poor in spirit is to look at God. Read this book about Him. Read His law. Look at what He expects from us. Contemplate standing before Him. It is also to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and to view Him as we see Him in the Gospels. The more we do, the more we shall understand the reaction of the apostles who, when looking at Him, said, Lord, increase our faith. He continues, Their faith, they felt, was nothing. Look at Him. The more we look at Him, the more hopeless shall we feel by ourselves and in and of ourselves, and the more shall we become poor in spirit. Look at Him, then you will have nothing to do yourself. It will be done. Let's pray together. Oh, come and buy without money. Oh, come and feast without pay. For the King has opened His banquet hall to the beggar, the outcast, and the slave. Father God, that is the good news of the gospel. That through the shed blood and broken body of our Lord Jesus, the way has been opened. We do not have to work and earn our way in, nor could we ever. But the way has been opened through Christ. He is our life. He is our righteousness. He is our life and our hope. And He has extended to all who would believe in Him and trust in Him and receive His name, He has extended to them the right to be called children of God. Father, I pray that You would bring all of us to an acute knowledge of our own neediness and poverty of spirit. that we would finally, finally run into the wall, hit the brick wall of thinking there's any possible way we can do enough. And Father, lift up our chin and direct our eyes to your Son, in whom we live and have our being. We ask this in his name. Amen.